When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. You are bound by the bonds of his love as long as you live to bless his name. It is not only a pleasurable exercise, but it is the absolute duty of the Christian life to praise God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. We got another Charles Spurgeon episode for everybody today. This sermon was preached in London in 1858. There's nothing like having a nothing Charles like it. Spurgeon nothing on like just it. a good, you know, you're going to have a good time. And, you know, we didn't, one thing that's kind of exciting about this one is the gentleman who reads the sermon, Joseph Spurgeon, is a relative or at least a kind of descendant of Charles Spurgeon's not, you know, maybe, you know, he wouldn't have been handing out, you know, it wasn't grandpa Spurgeon or anything like that, but he is in the line, He's in the, the blood family line, line yeah. somewhere. It hence his last name Spurgeon. Just kind of a fun Very thing. Cool. When we had the opportunity to have somebody whose last name was Spurgeon, read a Charles Spurgeon sermon. We thought, well, you got it. You got to do it. You got to take it when you can. So we have had Spurgeon sermons on the show before. In fact, when people ask us what episodes they should check out, uh, if you have friends of yours, you know, you've told them about Revive Thoughts, but they don't know where to d- dive in. Spurgeon sermons are among some of the best. I don't think they're ever a bad place to jump in. Uh, the most recent one we did, The Good Samaritan, featuring Dr. Chang at the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, was a really great interview yeah. and a really good, he read the sermon and it just all went together so well. In this episode, we wanted to take a look at one of the more controversial takes uh, that went through his life, a little part of Charles Spurgeon's life that maybe you've even heard a little bit about, but do you know how it all actually went down? Because I had kind of heard a little bit about it, but I didn't actually know how it went down, and that was the downgrade controversy. Downgrade controversy, yeah. I mean, when we think of Charles Spurgeon, we typically don't think of him, uh, of people not liking him, but yeah. there definitely were people there, this that was very a, much did not like him. This is an episode where we talk about the part, the time when he was not so popular that you may not even be really familiar with how that actually went. Yeah. Okay, Troy. Charles Spurgeon, put put 30 seconds on the clock for me. I'm going to summarize, uh, get us up to speed. Born in 1834, he became saved at the age of 15 when, while coming home, his route was rerouted due to a snowstorm and he took shelter in a church where he heard the gospel being preached and was led to the Lord that way. He became a preacher and preached to thousands of thousands over his lifetime. 
would run one of the essentially the biggest church in the entire world. On a different episode, we talked about his struggles with depression. We talked about him running in orphanages, and we, we had a fun episode on if he really earned the name the Prince of Preachers. Today, we're focusing on this, in quotes, downgrade controversy. Yeah. In the mid to late 1800s, we've talked about this so many different times. The, the Christians were being challenged very directly in their faith. This is a constant theme of ours. If we talk about the 1800s, it comes up, especially the late 1800s, it comes up pretty much every time. And you may almost be tired of listening to this, but perhaps, I, you know, but I also imagine that if you were alive today, you're seeing kind of some of the same stuff definitely. happen alive yeah. today. You're definitely seeing people being challenged directly on their faith and they're coming up with reasons maybe to leave or not sure what they believe anymore, kind of rethinking things. The old truths don't seem to be working. The, cha- the faith needs to adapt to the times. That kind of language is ever present. And as people have accepted these ideas, we've also seen in my own life, I think it's definitely common to see people who are not staying with the faith. But this is not a new thing. This is definitely what was happening in the late 1800s as well. Spurgeon, in his mind, saw two main sources for this attack. On the one hand, there was the recently published Darwin book that you know was bringing evolution over and questioning God as creator. And on the other side, there were these German philosophers who were just attacking directly the idea that the Bible could be inspired. And for him, it was pretty bad. In his own denomination, higher-ups had said, you do not need to believe in the deity of Christ to be a Baptist. You don't have to believe Jesus is Lord as long as you're baptized as an adult and you know, you're attending church. That's good enough for them. And there was also a guy, uh, and the guy who said that, by the way, would later be the president of the Baptist World Alliance. So this wasn't just one guy. This was a, a big name in his denomination saying this now. And Spurgeon looked around and said, that, no, this is a problem. We're, we're in trouble here. Yeah, Charles Spurgeon did not like the direction of, of any of this. He associated with the phrase called the downgrade controversy. And this was coined in an article that was published in his magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. And Spurgeon didn't write the, the initial article that sparked the controversy. It was a friend of his that wrote the actual article. But he did write a, a kind of note saying, hey, people, listen to this, uh, listen to this article he had definitely aligned himself with it and defended with this concept. And the article basically argued that that this was compromising God's word with the world. And that it was leading to what he called a downgrade of the churches. And what he meant by this was that the churches were often on fire for God, but then after a generation or two, they began to soften the gospel until they became false and didn't teach the gospel at all anymore and eventually would apostate. Which... I mean, this isn't in my notes, this is nothing, but just off the cuff, I see that. I mean, there in today's seems society? to be a, the, yeah. I, the schools, you know, we'll talk about Princeton being great and then Princeton falls away and then, you know, something has to take its place. But Princeton was originally a replacement for Harvard and Yale and those schools were originally a replacement for schools that had come. You know what I mean? Like we're always right. seeming to have to replace the old institutions with these new After groups. a few generations, yeah, it becomes more and more liberal until it's not a to, Christian, it's not Christian at all. And so when I hear that downgrade controversy, when I hear what the downgrade controversy is saying, to me, it's a little surprising that that was controversial because it just seems to kind of align with what we see in church history. Yet, I guess at that time, people, I, I think it was less, is that true? And more, we don't like that you're criticizing. Right. They took offense to it. Yeah. Because we can tell you're criticizing us. Uh, so people ha- talk about this issue. Maybe you've even heard a little bit of it. That's what kind of starts it off. Until I studied this episode, I've heard this phrase, but I just really didn't know the controversy itself. And I didn't realize how difficult 
this was for Charles Spurgeon. He was the only Baptist or evangelical, except for just a few close friends and associates of his, that was making a stand like this in the world at that point. I mean, even though the guys in Princeton were getting ready to, they really hadn't launched into the scene fully yet, yet either. He was just one of the very first guys yeah, Spurgeon to do Spurgeon was, was a little bit ahead of the, yes. the main liberal uh, uh happening you know yeah. in in america he could kind of see the future here a little bit yeah but he was about 10 to 15 years i think ahead of his time he was the only he was so he's the only guy kind of around the world doing this and there may have been others but he's definitely one of the most famous and when the articles went out he was attacked one of the leaders of the movement of his movement of his the baptist union the group he belonged to at the time said it pains me unspeakably to see this eminent preacher rousing the energies of thousands of Christians to engage in personal wrangling and strife instead of inspiring them to do something better, to do the heroic effort to carry the gospel to our fellow countrymen. And that same leader moved the assembly, the Baptist Union, to censure or to call foul on Spurgeon. And they got together in a, as a, you know, as a, to one of Spurgeon's critics' churches. They got together there and they voted, should we censure him? Should we basically say, we as a group disagree with Spurgeon? And in a vote of 2,000 to seven they censured him so it wasn't even it wasn't close at all and i and that had to have been brutal for spurgeon yeah so if, i mean if you knew nothing else about spurgeon i mean imagine being uh, this guy who had faithfully served at the church for years and then out of nowhere your entire denomination almost completely votes that you are wrong essentially it says no you're not correct in this matter. This was not the secular world or, or atheists attacking Spurgeon. These were ministers of his denomination, friends, likely people that he worked with, churches that he spoke at. And their argument was that the new ideas of learning could be combined with Christian zeal and could be great for Christians. They also thought that Spurgeon was causing division and accusing him of being stuck in the past. This led to years of back and forth of arguing Spurgeon and he kept hammering the subject home he, he was claiming that, that they were wrong and they were losing the fundamentals of the faith and they were accusing him of being divisive uh, a tough situation for anyone to be in and again one that I feel like we see a lot yeah. in the modern age I feel I, one of the, this I mean I think you could definitely apply this to today's time you, you if you have not seen this somewhere you will this this does happen today yeah, and it's it is a tough argument to land in, you know, to 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 try to cipher out because the God is very strong and very deliberate about not causing div div divisiveness in the church and not causing divisions in the church, but you have to you have to stand up for something at some point, and so for different truth, people, exactly. there's a different line there. And Charles Spurgeon's saying that this is not a compromise that should be made, or I am willing to stay with. I mean, not not everything is worth dividing a church over, right? Not every there there's church splits over the stupidest things. I had a these professor days. say that in like the last two years, he was a part of a church that split because they weren't buying enough donuts for second service. Yes, so stuff like there's that. There's stuff like that. And I would say that, that are worth. Oh wait, no, not worth. You don't. You don't buy <laughs> yeah, the donuts. Not the donut country. I mean, they were hungry, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, genuinely, I I I think there is that is a serious sin to God yeah. to cause division in the church like that. And so people that have claims uh, against people for causing divisiveness in the church, like I, I do take that pretty seriously because that's something a serious matter that God calls it to. But you can't sacrifice, you can't compromise on mm. 
your faith and you can't compromise on the word of God. And that's what Charles Spurgeon is sticking to in this passage. And it's, it's definitely something he worth thought was worth fighting for. And I think it's, I mean, it must've been really lonely. You know, we're going to talk about it in a second, but I'll say even now he took this hard old friends left him. Students at his college attacked him. Um, he said his wife would say later that this fight for the faith literally cost him his health. That's a direct quote. His final years and his health was not good. The stress and anxiety of this specific issue um, really helped lead to the end of his life. And when he died at 57, his wife, Susanna, said, I blame this controversy, this fight over the faith as what put him in the grave earlier than he should have gone. Now, but let's rewind just a sec because I want to tell you we didn't quite get to it because there's this interesting thing that happens in this controversy. There's this middle group that show up and they say, if we get both sides in the room to talk, you know, this movement, you, you maybe heard that people kind of like say, I'm not that side in the middle, I'm not that side, we're going to get the middle. So this middle group shows up in this story and they say, if we can get both sides in the room and talk, maybe we can hear out each other's sides. So this group goes to Spurgeon and they say, hey, who are the people you're having a problem with? Let's 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 figure out what we who we need to actually call out. And Spurgeon says, look, I don't think it's best if we get into a name calling, that guy's bad, that guy's bad, and we turn it into some kind of personality war. And so Spurgeon, Spurgeon says, let me make another suggestion. What if we just make some things that we believe in, some creeds or some just statements that we're going to unify around a couple statements that these are the things we as Baptist unions believe this is, this is our, you know, what our beliefs are. And that will be a better way to move forward than just me saying, I don't like him and he doesn't like me and going from there. And that was what got him censured, actually, because when they brought back the report, when these middle of the groupers brought back the report and said, yeah, he didn't actually specifically accuse anyone, um, he, you know, he didn't have a problem with anybody specifically. Well, they took that to the council and the council said, oh, so, you know, he's just causing trouble for no reason. He doesn't have anybody specifically a problem. And that was why they censured him. And Spurgeon came out of that feeling so betrayed. He felt like he had tried to do the right thing and not divisively name names and make this harder. And instead, he felt like that was the very ground they used to attack him. Spurgeon took it all very hard. Yeah, he left the the denomination, the Baptist Union denomination, and even that was seen as divisive amongst the people there. You know, instead of uniting the church, he left. That's how divisive Spurgeon is, which I can't imagine how painful that must have been for him to hear, to hear your friends accusing you of that's it's his friends these are not enemies these aren't atheists at a university these were people he'd probably worked alongside for decades before this moment yeah and again like i'm sure he took unity in the church very seriously as well and so to hear that that these are the the claims these are the the arguments that his friends are using against him that must have that must have really sucked for him that must have really been painful for him When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so the, this group, the Baptist Union, they won out, right? They won control. They pushed Spurgeon out. When Spurgeon died, the, this group still largely thought that the downgrade controversy was not a, a realistic uh, critique. They didn't, they didn't like that as a concept. They still, even after Spurgeon was gone, they still uh, thought that he was still being too divisive. But uh, you know what, Troy? Have you 
are you aware of any Baptist Union churches? <laughs> I, I mean, they're in England, maybe, but I don't know of any other famous leaders of that movement. I had never even heard the phrase I'd never Baptist heard, Union. I've never heard the Baptist Union. Until phrase. this episode. Right. But you I, know, I've heard of Spurgeon. I, I, I do know the name Spurgeon. <laughs> that so, is a name I have uh, I have some familiarity with. You know, in the end, yeah, I, I guess who who won in the end? Yes, <laughs> who, exactly. who was remembered in the end? And that's really how it went. As people saw the damage that uh, it caused, they realized Spurgeon, you know, he... he he kind of was right all along. He was the first person to fight against this liberal movement that was approaching the church going into the late 1800s, and he put his reputation all behind his his uh, his viewpoint against it. And though he would not see it in his lifetime, the Baptist Union would not survive that fight either. But Spurgeon's reputation, his writings, his sermons, his belief became the rally to all who wanted to fight against the weakening of the faith for generations. It's, you know, we said at the top of the show, it's kind of weird to think that Spurgeon was not well-liked by some when he died. He's usually seen as such a hero and such a popular guy in most portrayals. But, I mean, this is a great example of how important it is to fight and stand for what is right in the eyes of God. Troy and I, you know, often talk about you know, wanting to live our life in such a way to where 300, 400 years ago, you know, would would people remember anything that we did? Would people remember, you know, I, I'm not a pastor myself. I don't preach sermons, but like, would we end up on an episode of Revive Thoughts yes. 400 years from now? Would the Troy and Joel of 400 years from now, what would they be saying about Troy and Joel? You right. know, what would their questions and critiques be for us? Right. Uh, Spurgeon is a clear example of someone that, who whose life, whose fruits from the Holy Spirit, survived the test of time, and is someone that we we look back on to as staying true to his calling, staying true to the faith, uh, despite everything else that was going on in the world. Again, similar struggles and trials that we see in the world all around today. If you would ask, you know, out of all of the main speakers, out of all the pastors that you see in America, how many of those are going to be remembered 400 years from now? I don't... I, not a lot, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think so. If there's nothing else that Revive Thoughts has taught me and I hopefully has taught you, it's that you got to stand for truth. You got to stand it's for just, truth. It's yeah. not, the compromising way has not worked out for most of the guys we've covered that tried it. And the people who stood for truth, they may have had it hard, but they are remembered. It's the only thing that stands the test of time. It's the only thing that is truly timeless. <laughs> the sermon that we're about to listen to is titled A Lecture for Little Faith. And Spurgeon describes those who are small in faith and what it takes to grow one's faith. You can see in this sermon his view of faith and how he values it, guiding him through his trials. It's really interesting, you know, of the downgrade controversy. He, he said at one point, quote, the distant future will vindicate me. He believed firmly in the faith and that he was on the right track. He was not one of little faith. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is right, so that your faith grow exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounds. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 Whether we will praise God or not is not left to our opinion. Although the commandment does not say, you will praise the Lord, yet praise is God's most righteous due. And every man, as a partaker of God's bounty, and especially every Christian, is bound to praise God. It is true we have no exact system for daily praise, 
We have no commandment left on record specifically prescribing certain hours of song and thanksgiving. But still, the law, written upon the heart, teaches us with divine authority that it is right to praise God. And this unwritten mandate has as much power and authority about it as if it had been recorded on the tablets of stone or handed to us from the top of thundering Sinai. The Christian's duty is to praise God. Do not think, you who are always mourning, that you are guiltless in that respect. Do not imagine that you can discharge your duty to your God without songs of praise. It is your duty to praise him. You are bound by the bonds of his love as long as you live to bless his name. It is right and comely that you should do so. It is not only a pleasurable exercise, but it is the absolute duty of the Christian life to praise God. This is taught to us in the text. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is right. Do not let your hearts hang upon the willows, you mourning children of the Lord. It is your duty to strike them and bring forth their loudest music. It is sinful if you cease from praising God. You are blessed in order that you may bless him. And if you do not praise God, you're not bringing forth the fruit which he, as the divine husband, may well expect at your hands. Go out then, sons of God, and chant his praise. With every morning's dawn, lift up your notes of thanksgiving, and every evening let the setting sun be followed with your song. Girdle the earth with your praises. Surround it with an atmosphere of melody. So God himself will look down from heaven and accept your praises as similar in kind, though not equal in degree, to the praises of cherubim and seraphim. It seems, however, that the Apostle Paul in this instance exercised praise not for himself, but for the church at Thessalonica. If any of you should, in ignorance, ask the question why it was that Paul should take so deep an interest in the salvation of these saints and in their growth in faith, I would remind you that this is a secret known only to the men who have brought forth and nourished children and therefore love them. The Apostle Paul had founded the church at Thessalonica. Most of these people were his spiritual offspring, directly by the words of his mouth. With the power of the Spirit, they had been brought out of darkness into marvelous light. And they who have had spiritual children who have brought many sons for God can tell you that there is a love felt by a spiritual father that is not to be equaled even by the tender affection of a mother towards her child. I, says the apostle, I have been tender over you as a nursing mother. In another place, he says he had agonized in birth for their souls. This is a secret not known to the hireling minister. Only he whom God has himself ordained and thrust out into the work, only he who has had his tongue touched with a live coal from off the altar can tell you what it is to agonize for men's souls before they are converted and what it is to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory when the travail of their souls is seen in the salvation of God's elect. And now, beloved, Having given you two thoughts which seem to me to arise naturally from the text, I will focus at once on the object of this morning's discourse. The apostle thanks God that the faith of the Thessalonians has grown exceedingly. Leaving out the rest of the text, I will direct your attention this morning to the subject of growth in faith. Faith has degrees. 
In the first place, let's discuss the inconveniences of little faith. When faith first commences in the soul, it's like a grain of mustard seed, of which the Savior said it was the least of all seeds. But as God the Holy Spirit is pleased to imbue it, with the sacred moisture of his grace, it germinates and grows and begins to spread until at last it's become a great tree. To use another illustration, when faith commences in the soul, it is simply looking to Jesus. And perhaps even then there are so many clouds of doubts and so many dimness of the eyes that we have the need for the light of the Spirit to shine upon the cross before we are able even so much as to see it. When faith grows a little, it rises from looking to Christ to coming to Christ. He who stood afar off and looked to the cross by and by plucks up courage, and getting heart to himself, he runs to the cross. Or perhaps he does not run, but is drawn before he can so much as creep there. And even then, it is with a limping gait that he draws near to Christ the Savior. But that done, faith goes a little further. It lays hold on Christ. It begins to see him in his excellency, conceives him to be a real Christ and a real Savior, and is convinced of his perfection. And when it has done this, it goes further. It leans on Christ. It leans on its beloved, casting all the burden of its cares, sorrows, and griefs upon that blessed shoulder, and permits all its sins to be swallowed up in the great red sea of the Savior's blood. And faith can then go further still. For having seen and run towards him and laid hold upon him and having leaned upon him, faith in the next place puts in a humble but a sure and certain claim to all that Christ is and all that he has done. And then, trusting alone in this, adding all this to itself, faith mounts to full assurance. And out of heaven there is no state more rapturous and blessed. But, as I have observed at the beginning, faith is but very small. And there are some Christians who never get out of little faith, all the while they are here. You notice in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress how many little faiths he mentions. There's our old friend, ready to halt, who went all the way to the celestial city on crutches, but left them when he went into the River Jordan. Then there is little feeble mind, who carried his feeble mind with him all the way to the banks of the river and then left it and ordered it to be buried in a dunghill that none might inherit it. Then there's Mr. Fearing, too, who used to stumble over a straw and was always frightened if he saw a drop of rain because he thought the floods of heaven were soon upon him. And you remember Mr. Despondency and Miss Much Afraid, who were so long locked up in the dungeon of giant despair that they were almost starved to death, and there was little left of them but skin and bone. And poor Mr. Feeblemind, who had been taken into the cave of giant Slaygood, who was about to eat him, when Greatheart came to his deliverance. John Bunyan was a very wise man. He has put a great many of those characters in his book because there are a great many of them in our lives. He has not left us with one Mr. Ready to Halt, but he has given us seven or eight graphic characters because he himself in his own time was one of them. And he had known many others who had walked in the same path. I do not doubt that I have a very large percentage of this congregation here this morning from this very class of persons. Now, let me notice the inconveniences of little faith. The first inconvenience of little faith 
is that while it is always sure of heaven, it very seldom thinks so. Little faith is quite as sure of heaven as great faith. When Jesus Christ counts up his jewels on the last day, he will take to himself the little pearls as well as the great ones. Even if a diamond is tiny, it's still precious because it's a diamond. So is faith, be it so little, if it is true faith. Christ will never lose even the smallest jewel of his crown. Little faith is always sure of heaven because the name of little faith is in the book of eternal life. Little faith was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Little faith was bought by the blood of Christ. Yes, and he cost as much as great faith. For every man a shekel was of redemption. Every man, whether great or small, prince or peasant, had to redeem himself with a shekel. Christ has bought all, both little and great, with the same most precious blood. Little faith is always sure of heaven. For God has begun the good work in him, and he will carry it on. God loves him, and he will love him until the end. God has provided a crown for him, and he will not allow the crown to hang there without a head. He has built for him a mansion in heaven, and he will not allow the mansion to stand empty forever. Little faith is always safe, but he very seldom knows it. If you meet him, he's sometimes afraid of hell, very often afraid that the wrath of God abides on him. He will tell you that the country on the other side, the flood, can never belong to a worm so worthless as he. Sometimes it's because he feels himself so unworthy. Another time it's because the things of God are too good to be true, he says, or he cannot think that they can be true to him. Sometimes he's afraid he's not elect. Another time he fears that he has not been called righteous, that he's not come to Christ in the right way. Another time his fears are that he will not hold on to the end that he would not be able to persevere. And if you kill a thousand of his fears, he's sure to have another army of them by tomorrow. For unbelief is one of those things that you cannot destroy. It has, says Bunyan, as many lives as a cat. You may kill it over and over again, but it still lives. It's one of those ill weeds that sleep in the soil even after it's been burned. It only needs a little encouragement to grow again. Now, great faith is sure of heaven, and he knows it. He drinks in the mysteries of paradise, even before he enters within the pearly gates. He sees the streets that are paved with gold. He beholds the walls of the city, the foundations that are of precious stones. He hears the mystic music of the glorified and begins to smell on earth the perfumes of heaven. But poor little faith can scarcely look at the sun. He very seldom sees the light, he gropes in the valley, and while all is safe, he always thinks himself unsafe. That is one of the disadvantages of little faith. Another disadvantage is that little faith, while always having grace enough, for that is little faith's promise, my grace will be sufficient for you, yet never thinks he has grace enough. He will have quite enough grace to carry him to heaven, and great heart won't have any more than him. The greatest saint, when he entered heaven, found that he went in with an empty wallet. He had eaten his last crust of bread when he got there. The manna ceased when the children of Israel entered into Canaan. They had none to carry with them there. They began to eat the corn of the land when the manna of the wilderness had ceased. But little faith is always afraid that he does not have enough grace. You see him in trouble. Oh, says he, 
I will never be able to hold my head above water. Blessed be God, he can never sink. If you see him in prosperity, he's afraid you'll be intoxicated with pride, that he will turn aside like Balaam. If you meet him attacked by an enemy, he's scarcely able to say three words for himself. And he lets the enemy snap upon him. If you find him fighting the battle for the Lord Jesus Christ, he holds his sword tight enough, good man, but he has not much strength in his arm to bring his sword down with might. He can do but little, for he's afraid that God's grace will not be sufficient for him. Great faith, on the other hand, can shake the world. What does he care about trouble, trial, or duty? He that helped him bears him through and makes him more than a conqueror too. Great faith with faith, an army single-handed if God commanded him. And with the jawbone of an ass, he would slay heaps upon heaps and thousands of men. There is no fear of his lacking strength. He can do all things or can bear all sufferings, for his Lord is there. Come what may, his arm is always sufficient for him. He treads down his enemy, and his cry every day is like the shout of Deborah. O oh, my soul, you have trodden down strength. Little faith treads down strength too, but he does not know it. He kills his enemies, but has not eyesight enough to see the slain. He often hits so hard that his foemen retreat, but he thinks they are still there. He conjures up a thousand phantoms, and when he has routed his real enemies, he makes others and trembles at the phantoms which he has himself made. Little faith assuredly finds that his garments will not wax old that his shoes will be iron and brass, and that as his day is so, will his strength be. But all the way he will be murmuring, because he thinks his garments will grow old, that his feet will be blistered and sore. And he is terrified for fear the day should be too heavy for him, and that the evil of the day will more than counterbalance his grace. Ah, it's an inconvenient thing to have little faith, for little faith perverts everything into sorrow and grief. Again, there is a sad inconvenience about little faith, namely, that if little faith is sorely tempted to sin, he's apt to fall. Strong faith can well contest with the enemy. Satan comes along and says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Nay, we say, you can't give us all these things for they are already ours. Nay, says he, but you're poor, naked and miserable. Aye, says we to him, but still these things are ours. And it's good for us to be poor, good for us to be without earthly goods, or else our Father would give them to us. Oh, says Satan, you deceive yourselves. You've no portion of these things. But if you will serve me, then I will make you rich and happy here. Strong faith says, serve you, you fiend, boasting? Do you offer me silver? Behold, God gives me gold. Do you say to me, I will give you this if you disobey? Fool that you are. I have a thousand times as great wages for my obedience as you could offer for my disobedience. But when Satan meets little faith, he says to him, If you are the son of God, cast yourself down. And poor little faith is so afraid that he's not a son of God that he is very apt to cast himself down upon the supposition. There, says Satan, I will give you all this if you will disobey. Little Faith says, I'm not quite sure that I'm a child of God. They have a portion among them that are sanctified. 
and he's very apt to fall into sin by reason of the littleness of his faith. At the same time, I must observe that I have seen some little faiths who are far less apt to fall into sin than others. They've been so cautious that they dared not put one foot before the other because they were afraid they should put it in the wrong spot. They scarcely even dared to open their lips, but they prayed, O oh Lord, will you open my lips? Afraid that they should let a wrong word out if they were to speak. Always alarmed unless they should be falling into sin unconsciously. They had a very tender conscience. Well, I like people of this sort. I've sometimes thought that little faith holds tighter by Christ than any other. For a man who is very near drowning is sure to clutch the plank of all the tighter with the grasp of a drowning man, which tightens and becomes more clenched the more his hope is decreased. Well, beloved, little faith may be kept from falling, but this is the fruit of tender conscience and not of their little faith. Careful walking is not a result of little faith. It may go with it and so may keep little faith from perishing, but little faith is in itself a dangerous thing, laying us open to innumerable temptations and taking away very much of our strength to resist them. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and if that joy ceases, you become weak and very apt to turn aside. Beloved, you who are little faiths, I tell you, it is inconvenient for you to remain this way, for you have many nights ahead and few days. Your years are like Norwegian years, very long winters and very short summers. You have many howlings, but very little shouting of praise. You are often playing upon the pipe of mourning, but very seldom sounding the trumpet of exultation. I wish to God you can change your notes a little. Why should the children of a king go mourning all their day? It is not the Lord's will that you should always be sorrowful. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. O oh, you that have been fasting, anoint your heads and wash your faces so that you appear not as men at a fast. O oh, you that are sad in heart, light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Therefore, rejoice, for you will praise him. Say to yourselves, why are you cast down, O soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him who is light of my countenance and my God. Having discussed the inconveniences and disadvantages of little faith, let me give you a few rules with regard to the way of strengthening it. If you would have your little faith grow into great faith, you must feed it well. Faith is a feeding grace. It does not ask you to give it the things that are seen, but it does ask you to give it the promises of the things that are not seen, which are eternal. You tell me you have little faith? I ask you whether you've given to the meditation of God's word, whether you've studied the promises, whether you're lacking in carrying on in these sacred things every day. Do you reply, no? Then I tell you, I do not wonder at your unbelief. He who deals largely with the promises will, under grace, very soon find that there is great room for believing them. Get a promise, beloved, every day, and take it with you wherever you go. Mark it, learn it, and inwardly digest it. Don't do as some men do, who think it's a Christian duty to read a chapter every morning, and they read one as long as your arm without understanding it at all. But take out some choice text and pray to the Lord during the day to break it up to your mind. Do as Luther says. When I get hold of a promise, says he, I look upon it as I would a fruit tree. I think, there hangs the fruit above my head, 
and if I can get them, I must shake the tree to and fro. So I take a promise and meditate upon it. I shake it to and fro, and sometimes the mellow fruit fans into my hand. At other times, the fruit is less ready to fall, but I never leave it until I get it. I shake, shake all day long. I turn the text over and over again. And at last, the pomegranate drops down, and my soul is comforted with apples. Do that, Christian. Deal much with the promises. Trade in the stocks of God's promises. There is a rich perfume in every promise of God. Taken, it is an alabaster box. Break it by meditation. And the sweet scent of faith will shed abroad in your house. Again, prove the promise. And in that way, you will get your faith strengthened. When you are at any time placed in distress, take a promise and see whether it is true. Suppose you're nearly out of bread. Take this promise. Your bread will be given to you. Your water will be sure. Rise up in the morning when nothing is in the cupboard and say, I will see whether God will keep this promise. And if he does, do not forget it. Set it down in your book. Make a mark in your Bible against it. Do as the old women did, who put T and P against the promise and told her minister that it meant tried and proved so that when she was again in distress, she could not help believing. Have you been trialed by Satan? There is a promise that says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Take that and prove it. And when you have proved it, make a mark against it and say, this I know is true for I have proved it to be so. There's nothing in the world that can confirm faith like proof. What I want, said one skeptic, it's facts. And so it is with the Christian. Whatever he wants is a fact to make him believe. The older you grow, the stronger your faith should become. For you have so many facts with which to encourage your faith and compel you to believe in God. Only think of a man who has come to be 70 years of age. What a pile of evidence could he accumulate if he kept a note of all of God's providential goodness and all his loving kindness. You're not surprised when you hear a man, the hairs of whose head are white with the sunlight of heaven, get up and say, these 50 years have I served God and he's never forsaken me. I can bear willingly testimony to his faithfulness. Not one good thing has failed of all that the Lord has promised. All has come to pass. Now we who are young beginners must not expect that our faith will be so strong as it will be in years to come. Every instance of God's love should make us believe him more. And as each promise passes by and we can see the fulfillment of it at the end, we must be compelled and forced to say that God has kept so many of these promises and will keep them until the end. But the worst of it is that we forget them all, and so we begin to have gray hairs sprinkled on our heads, and we have no more faith than when we began, because we've forgotten God's repeated answers. And although he has fulfilled the promise, we've suffered it to lie buried in forgetfulness. Another plan I would recommend for the strengthening of your faith, though not so excellent as the last, is to associate yourselves with godly and much-tried men. It is astonishing how young believers will get their faith refreshed by talking with old and advanced Christians. Perhaps you are in great doubt and distress. You run off to an old brother and you say, Oh, my dear friend, I'm afraid I'm not a child of God at all. I'm in such deep distress. I have had blasphemous thoughts cast in my heart. If I were a child of God, I should never feel like that. The old man smiles and says, Ah, you have not gone very far on the road to heaven, or else you would know better. Why, I'm the subject of these thoughts very often. 
old as I am, and though I hope I've enjoyed full assurance for a long time, yet there are seasons when if I could have heaven for a grain of faith, I could not think heaven was mine, for I could not find so much as a grain in me, though it is there. And he will tell you what dangers he has passed, and of the sovereign love that has kept him, of the temptations that threaten to ensnare him, and of the wisdom that guided his feet. And he will tell you of his own weakness and God's omnipotence, of his own emptiness and God's fullness, of his own changeableness and God's immutability. And after talking with such a man you don't believe, maybe you are sinful indeed. For out of the mouth of two witnesses, the whole is established. But when there are many such who can bear testimony to God, it would be a foul sin indeed if we were to doubt him. Another way you may an increase of faith is to labor to get as much as possible free from yourself. I have striven with all my might to obtain the position of perfect indifference to men's praise. I have found at times, if I have been much praised in company, it is my heart has given way a little, and I have taken notice of it and felt pleased that the very next time I was in men's company, I was ridiculed and abused. I felt the abuse keenly. For the very fact that I took the praise made me more sensitive to abuse. So that I have always tried, especially of late, to take no more notice of man's praise than of his abuse, but to fix my heart simply upon this. I know that I have a right motive in what I attempt to do. I am conscious that I endeavor to serve God with a single eye to his glory, and therefore it is not for me to take praise from man nor his abuse. But to stand independently, upon the one rock of right doing. Now, the same thing will apply to you. Perhaps you find yourself full of virtue and grace one day, and the devil flatters you. Ah, you're you're a bright Christian. You might join the church now. You'd be quite an honor to it. See how well you're prospering. And unconsciously to yourself, you believe the sound of that siren music, and you half believe that you really are growing rich in grace. Well, The next day, you find yourself very low indeed in godly matters, and perhaps you fall into some sin, and now the devil says, Ah, now you are no child of God. Just look at your sins. Beloved, the only way in which you can maintain your faith is to live above the praise of self and the abuse of self, to live simply upon the blood and merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who can say in the midst of all his virtues and talents, These are but dross and dung. My hope is fixed on nothing less than Jesus Christ's finished sacrifice. Such a man, when sins prevail, will find his faith remains constant. For he will say, I once was full of virtue, and then I did not trust in myself. And now that I have none, I still only trust in my Savior. For change as I may, he won't change. If I had to depend on myself to the least degree, then it would be up and down, up and down. But since I rely on what Christ has done, since he is the perfect pillar of my hope, then come what may, my soul rests secure, confident in faith. Faith will never be weak if self is weak. But when self is strong, faith cannot be strong, for self is very much like what the gardener calls the sucker at the bottom of the tree, which never bears fruit but only sucks away the nourishment from the tree itself. Now, self is that sucker which sucks away the nourishment from faith. And you must cut it up or else your faith will always be little faith. And you will have difficulty in maintaining any comfort in your soul. 
But perhaps the only way in which most men get their faith increased is by great trouble. We don't grow strong in faith on sunshiny days. It's only in strong weather that a man gets faith. Faith is not an attainment that drops like the gentle dew from heaven. It generally comes in the whirlwind and the storm. Look at the old oaks. How is it that they have become so deeply rooted in the earth? Ask the March winds, and they will tell you. It was not the April shower that did it, or the sweet May sunshine, but it was March's rough wind, shaking the tree to and fro, and causing its roots to bind themselves around the rocks. So it must be with us. We don't make great soldiers in the barracks at home. They must be made amidst flying shot and thundering cannon. We cannot expect to make good soldiers on the ponds. They must be made far away on the deep sea where the wild winds howl, and the thunder rolls like drums in the march of the god of armies. Storms and tempests are the things that make men tough and hardy mariners. They see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. So with Christians. Great faith must have great trials. Mr. Greatheart would never have been Mr. Greatheart if he had not once been Mr. Great Trouble. Valiant for truth would never have put to fight those foes and have been so valiant if the foes had not first attacked him. So with us, we must expect great troubles before we will attain to much faith. Then he who would have great faith must exercise what he has. I should not like tomorrow to go and shoe horses or to make horseshoes on an anvil. For I'm sure my arm would ache in the first hour with lifting the heavy hammer and banging it down so many times. Whatever the time allotted, I would not be able to keep up. The reason why the blacksmith's arm does not tire is because he's used to it. He's kept at it all day long these many years. It has become strong because it is in use. Do you want to get your faith strong? Use it. You lazy, lie-abed Christians that go up to your churches and chapels and take your seats and hear our sermons and talk about getting good, but you never think about doing good, you're letting hell fill beneath you, and yet are too idle to stretch out your hands to pluck brands from the eternal burning. You see sin running down your streets, yet can never put so much as your feet to turn or stem the current. I'm not shocked that you complain of the littleness of your faith. It ought to be little. You do so little. And why should God give you more strength than you plan to use? Strong faith must always be an exercise faith. And he that dares not exercise the faith he has will not have more. Take away from him the one talent and give it to him that has, because he did not put it out of usury. In Mr. Whitfield's life, you do not find often him complaining of a lack of faith, or if he did, it was when he only preached nine times a week. He never complained when he preached 16 times. Read Grimshaw's life. You do not often find him troubled with despondency when he preached 24 times in seven days. It was only when he was growing a little idle and only preached 12 times. Always keep at it and all at it, and there's not much fear of your faith becoming weak. It is with our faith as with boys in the wintertime. There they go round the fire, rubbing and chafing their hands to keep the blood in circulation, and almost fighting each other to see which will sit closest to the fire and get warm. At last the father comes and says, Boys, this won't do. You'll never get warm by these artificial means. Run out and do some work. Then they all go out and they come in again with worn faces. 
but their hands no longer tingle and they say, well, Father, we didn't realize it was half as warm as it was. So must it be with you. You must set to work if you would have your faith grow strong and warm. True, your work won't save you, but faith without works is dead, frozen to death. But faith with works grows to a red heat of fervency and to the strength of stability. Go and teach in the Sunday school, or go and catch seven or eight poor ragged children and care for them. Go and visit the poor old woman in her hovel. Go and see to some poor dying creatures in the back streets of our great city, and you will say, dear me, how wonderfully my faith is refreshed just by doing something. You will have been watering yourself while you are watering others. Now, my last advice will be this. The best way to get your faith strengthened is to have communion with Christ. If you commune with Christ, you cannot be unbelieving. When his left hand is under my head and his right hand does embrace me, I cannot doubt. When my beloved sits at his table and he brings me into his banqueting house and his banner over me is his love, then indeed I do believe. When I feast with him, my unbelief is abashed and hides its head. Speak, you that have been led in the green pastures and have been made to lie down by the still waters. You who have seen his power in his home and hope to see them even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, speak, you that have sat at his feet with Mary and laid your head upon his bosom with the well-beloved John. Have you not found when you have been near to Christ your faith has grown strong, and when you have been far away that your faith has become weak? It is impossible to look Christ in the faith and then doubt him. When you cannot see him, then you doubt him. But if you live in fellowship with him, you are like the baby lambs of Nathan's parable. For you lie in his bosom, and you eat from his table, and drink from his cup. You must believe when your beloved speaks for you and says, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. There is no hesitation then. You must arise from the lowlands of your doubt up to the hills of assurance. And now, in conclusion... There is a certain high attainment to which faith may, if diligently cultivated, certainly attain. Can a man's faith grow so strong that he will never afterwards doubt at all? I answer no. He who has the strongest faith will have sorrowful intervals of despair. I suppose there has scarcely ever been a Christian who has not, at some time or other, had the most painful doubts concerning his acceptance of the Beloved. All God's children will have spasms of doubt, even though they are usually strong in faith. Again, may a man so cultivate his faith that he may be infallibly sure that he is a child of God, so sure that he has made no mistake, so sure that all the doubts and fears which may be thrust upon him may not be able at that time to get an advantage over him? I answer yes, certainly he may. A man may in this life be as sure of his acceptance in the beloved as he is of his own existence. In fact, he not only may, but there are some of us who have enjoyed this precious state and privilege for years. We do not mean for years together. Our peace has been interrupted. We have now and then been subjected to doubts. But I have known some, I knew one especially, who said that for 30 years he had enjoyed almost invariably a full sense of his acceptance in Christ. I have had, he said, very often a sense of sin, but I have had with that a sense of the power of the blood of Christ. I have now and then for a little time had great despair, but still I may say, taking it as a general rule, 
that for 30 years I've enjoyed the fullest assurance of my acceptance in the Beloved. I trust a large portion of God's people can say that for months and years, they've not had to sing, Tis a point I long to know. But they can say, I know in whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. I will try to depict the state of the Christian. He may be as poor as poverty can make him, but he is rich. He has no thought with regard to tomorrow, for tomorrow will take thought for the things of itself. He casts himself upon the providence of God. He believes that he who clothes the lilies and feeds the ravens will not allow his children to go starving or barefooted. He has but little concern as to his temporal estate. He folds his arms and floats down the stream of providence, singing all the way, whether he floats by a mud bank, dark, dreary, and nauseous, or by a palace fair and valley pleasant. He will not alter his place. He neither moves nor struggles. He has no will nor wish which way to swim. His only desire being to lie passive in God's hand and to know no will but his. When the storm flies over his head, he finds Christ to be a shelter from the tempest. When the heat is hot, he finds Christ to be the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. He just casts his anchor down deep into the sea. And when the wind blows, he sleeps. Hurricanes may come about his ears. The masts creak and every timber seems to be strained and every nail to shake from its place. But there he sleeps. Christ is at the helm. He says, my anchor is within the veil. I know it will keep its hold. The earth shakes beneath his feet, but he says, Though the earth is removed and the mountains are cast into the sea, yet we will not fear. For God is our refuge and strength, and a very present help in time of trouble. Ask him about his eternal interest, and he tells you that his only confidence is in Christ. That when he may die, he knows he will stand boldly at the last great day, clothed in his Savior's righteousness. He speaks very confidently, never boastingly, though... He has no time to dance the giddy dance of presumption. He stands firmly on the rock of confidence. Perhaps you think he's proud. Oh, he is a humble man. He lies low before the cross, but not before you. He can look you boldly in the face and tell you that Christ is able to keep that which he has committed to him. He knows that his honor is engaged to save the meanest of his sheep and that his heavenly father gave his hands securely keep. And die when he will, he can lay his head upon the pillow of the promise and breathe his life out on the Savior's chest without a struggle or a murmur crying victory in the arms of death, challenging death to produce his sting and demanding of the grave its victory. Such is the effect of strong faith. I repeat, the weakest in the world by diligent cultivation may attain to it. Only seek the refreshing influence of the divine spirit and walk in Christ's commandments and live close to him. And you that are dwarfs like Zacchaeus will become giants. The hyssop on the wall will stare up into the dignity of the cedar in Lebanon. And you that fly before your enemies will yet be able to chase a thousand. And two of you will put 10,000 to flight. May the Lord enable his poor little ones to grow. As for those of you who have no faith in Christ, let me remind you of one sad thing, namely, that without faith it is impossible to please God. If you've not put your trust in Christ, then God is angry with you every day. If you do not turn, he will wet his sword, for he has bent his bow and made it ready. I beseech you, cast yourself on Christ.
He's worthy of your trust. There is none other to trust. He is willing to receive you. He invites you. He shed his blood for you. He intercedes for you. Believe on him. For so his promise runs. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Do both of these things. Believe on him and then profess your faith in baptism. And the Lord bless you and hold you to the end and make you increase exceedingly in faith to the glory of God. May the Lord add his blessing. In this sermon, when he's talking about little faith, the part that stood out to me, and there are so many good parts to it, I I love a good Pilgrim's Progress, you know, referencing, and that was a lot of that in here, so that just was great. But one thing that really stood out to me was him talking about how faith is usually not grown during the good times, and I think we all know that. I think we do, even though we read, maybe we're reading lots of books and we're listening to lots of sermons, and God might be giving us the resources and the tools. You know, if I can use a farming analogy, maybe He's, you know, getting ready to, you know, plant and sow the crops there and everything. But the, it's not going to come till there's rain. You have to have some of that storm to grow the faith. And Spurgeon says nothing stretches the faith like those hard times, and yet that's usually the moments when we feel most like I don't have the faith to keep going. That really stood out to me. I think some people are not as faithful as they should be because they just are always hiding from the storms, are always staying inside. They're not getting out there and they're not. And when the storms come, they just give up and they're, I don't know what to do. I'm going to come back when it's feeling better. That is exactly when you need to hold strong. It's during those toughest moments because if you can and you can trust Christ during those moments, even though you feel like you're about to snap, that is when your faith is going to stretch. That is when your faith is going to grow. And that is when you're going to be able to go from little faith to great faith. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Joseph Spurgeon. Really need to have a bona fide Spurgeon uh, as part of our Revive we Thoughts. We need to get lineup. a bona fide, you know, Taylor and some other, you know, see who else. Oh is yeah, you got, yeah. You know, If you if you have a family member or are related to some famous preacher, let us let us let know. us know. <laughs> yeah. We always recommend telling people that you listened to Revived Thoughts. However. The, a great episode to tell people, oh, hey, uh, what are you doing? Oh, sorry, I have my headphones and I was just listening to a Charles Spurgeon by a Spurgeon. Oh, if you not known, you didn't know how to do that, well, Revive Thoughts can be the podcast that brings that into your life. Maybe don't do it so arrogantly and jerkishly, but I'm just saying, <laughs> uh, this is a great episode. We All of our episodes are great episodes, but this is a great episode. Hey, have you heard this sermon by Charles Spurgeon? You know, I heard you telling me you're wrestling with your faith a little bit. You know, this is something you might be interested in. This is a great is a great sermon of encouragement. Spurgeon's story is a great sermon of courage, and I think that th- this is a great episode. You should tell somebody, text it to them, meet up with them, and tell them about it. Just just let them know. Put it up on Facebook or somewhere on social media, and you know while you're there, maybe make sure you're following us on Facebook or wherever you're at Twitter. And uh, you know, and if you can leave a review for the show or any of the shows or Vive Studios, giving us five stars and maybe telling people why you like it. It does go a long way. It helps people decide whether they want to check it out. And you never know. Your five-star review combined with maybe a couple others might be why somebody finds this show, listens to a sermon, and that might deeply encourage them in their faith right where they are. So we thank you guys who are telling others. You tell us when you're telling others, and we appreciate that. And uh, we just ask that you continue to do so. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.